Welcome to After the Bell with your host, Laura. If you like what you hear today, please rate and review kindly. This show is a series of conversations with educators and learners to try and deconstruct some of the stereotypes around education. If you'd like to know more about me, please visit my Instagram page at EducatingLaura. And thank you so much for joining me today. I have a really good friend of mine, Kate. We actually grew up in the same street and Kate is three years older than me. And I think I often looked up to her as kind of like an older sister figure and she'd give me advice on fashion. We'd read Dolly Doctor together and, you know, we had that really lovely relationship where I would learn a lot from her. She became a primary school teacher and is now a mum of four and we've always kept in really good contact over the years, celebrating weddings and family and birthdays and all of that kind of stuff. And I was really excited to have her on because I think that she is deeply passionate about education and lifelong learning and instills that in her kids, whether they're in the classroom or the kids she has at home. She says something in this that really resonated with me and that was as a prep teacher, she often found that kids came in with a really clear sense of who they were. And throughout the education system, that seemed to dissipate in some way. And it was interesting because I reflected on the kinds of things that I was drawn to as a younger person and as a child. And I would often create little radio shows with my friends and I would interview my grandparents and I would cut music for little dances that I was doing and all of those things that were fun for me and now skills that I'm using to do this podcast. And it is creating a lot of fun and enjoyment for me and allowing me to connect in a time of isolation. So I'd love for you to consider the things that you were naturally drawn to as a child and whether or not those things are now part of your work or part of your profession or part of the things that you would like to do in life or whether you're ignoring them and maybe there are things that you were once passionate about that you didn't think were relevant or were told were not relevant, but maybe they could be relevant again. So just something to have a think about. Anyway, here is my discussion with Kate. Hope you love it. Hey, Kate, thanks so much for joining us today. How are you? Hi, Laura. Good, thank you. Thanks so much for inviting me. Pleasure. I thought we'd jump straight in. So can you tell me what kind of student you were? I don't want to use a stereotype, but just to put it simply, I was a nerd. (laughs) (laughs) I started school really young, back in prep. I was only four and I was one of those annoying children that would cry every day so much that I'd sometimes vomit. (laughs) I feel so sorry for my prep teacher and Mm. I was very nervous. But then over time, by probably about year four or five, I was much more confident. Secondary school, different again. I suppose year seven was is always challenging when you come from your safety nest of your primary school and into secondary Mm. school where there's suddenly so many more people. But overall, you know, I was a pretty easy student, I think. I think my teachers would say that anyway. And that was a big, because we obviously went to the same primary school and high school. That was a huge jump for us because we went from 200 kids to what? What was it, like 1,500 or something? 200 in the year level. I think there was about 200 girls Mm. per year level. So, yeah, it was huge. What are your thoughts then about going to school so early? Oh, definitely I was too young, but my parents just did what the kinder teachers said and that's what they did back then. There was no talk about delayed starts, especially to my parents anyway. And I think, you know, and it's actually crazy, but because I was tall, (laughs) Mm. people just thought I was more mature and 
I suppose, ready for things, even though mm. socially, emotionally, I may not have been. Mm. You know, it's funny because my mum talks about that all the time as well because she was pretty much her height at 12 years old, which was similar to you, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I was definitely the tallest in year six. Yeah. It's quite funny when you look at the photo. Yeah, but she laughs. Well, I don't know if she laughs, actually. I think it was quite confronting because she'd be asked out by the bus drivers in like year seven because she looked so much older. Mm. And I'm wondering what impact that has. Wow. I've never thought about it before because I've never looked older than I am. So what impact? what's the impact of that? Yeah. Looking so much more mature. Well, I see it in my eldest, Sander. He's very tall. And even, you know, as a toddler, people would ask him questions and he couldn't answer. He wasn't even talking properly yet. Mm. And people just have higher expectations and they really do judge a book by its cover. Mm. And you feel that? Yeah, I, I think so. And my mum used to say, it affected me. Probably I didn't see it as much as what she saw it, Mm. you know, because parents are always there ready to answer for you or catch you when you're falling. And I suppose she did that a lot for me. Yeah. When um, situations arose. Yeah. Okay. It's an interesting thought. I never thought about it Mm. before. Mm. What were some of the stereotypes that you bought into during those formative years? Well, I was chatting to Adam about this earlier, actually, my husband and the stereotypes at high school and we talked a lot about how in um, our early years at secondary school people were segregated into groups such as nerds, surfies, homies. Mm-hmm. You know that's not the language people use anymore but it was very much based on your interests or your music. Yeah. Yeah at my high school I found that people didn't it didn't mean that people didn't get along so you'd still you know, it didn't mean that you couldn't talk to certain people or hang around with them, when, especially when you're in classes. It was more so when you're outside or socialising outside of school, you went to parties with people more so in your group. Mm. And I wouldn't say that I was in one group specifically. Our group of friends kind of floated in the middle, probably between the nerds and the surfies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. It's as a teacher now, Although I've only taught in primary school, even looking at the year sixes, I wouldn't say that they're so grouped like that anymore. It's more the top, people in the top of the hierarchy, and then you've got people at the bottom and the middle. It doesn't seem to be based on music and interests anymore. Maybe it is because I'm not on the inside. Well, how do you identify the hierarchy then? How does a hierarchy look to you from the outside? So when I taught year five and six last year, I was a specialist teacher, so I didn't see them in the classroom, but I could definitely sense because I didn't know them so well. I could just tell that the children who were really confident and the children who were admired versus the children who were looked down upon, eyes rolled towards them. Mm. It was quite, it was actually quite sad to see that hierarchy so clearly in such young children. And you just wonder how they transitioned into year seven. And I wonder too what it is. I've actually said this on a previous podcast that popularity is so perplexing. I don't understand why Mm. someone is popular, why someone is not popular. Can you Mm. see that? Do you understand how it works or you just see it happening? It just develops over time and whether it's mistakes that children have made Mm. and others judge them on that or whether it's because of the way they look or the experiences that they have. I think at the school I saw this at, there was definitely um, financial issues for some and I found that maybe the people who were more affluent were seemed to be at the top of that hierarchy, which was, again, very sad Mm. that children pick up on that. But I think it's society Mm. and especially movies and TV shows that they watch, they see that the confident 
attractive people are at the top. Mm. Yeah. And what about you? Did you see that too as a student? Did you buy into that a little bit? I think, I mean, you'd like to say that you didn't, but I think that we do somewhere in there, especially as young people. We're so easily influenced by others and society. And if we could do our time again at school, I think we'd do it very differently. And everyone would be just in their own skin. Mm. There would be maybe some people that were easily influenced, but most people would just stand on their own two feet, say what they want, do what they want and follow their own dreams and not be held back by others. Mm. But I think that that comes from, I mean, there's such formative years for a reason. I mean, we develop our identity really from, I Mm. think, for me at least, from 10 years old probably is when I started to really question who I was and then I gave a lot of my power away in those high school years to, as you say, celebrities, to what other kids were doing, what teachers thought of me. I don't know how that changes or whether that's a societal thing that has to change in which we empower our kids rather than criticise them. I've taught prep most of my life and when I look at the preps, they're all so independent. Mm. They know who they are. They are who they want to be. And that's that's what I love about teaching the preps. But then over the years, it's just slowly, slowly changes. And it's just sad to see that so many students, they change themselves to suit others and don't follow their own passions. I think that's the introduction of the right and wrong, isn't it? Of getting something right or getting something wrong or failing and being introduced Mm -hmm. to that idea of failing rather than development. And even that, I wonder if reframing that language is important because we've all failed. And in fact, I think that the failures often lead to something much greater anyway. Yeah. And that's something that I know I personally say to my students all the time, that we need to learn from our mistakes and they're there for a reason. And I often highlight my own mistakes in the day and say, well, this happened to me and this is what I'm going to do next. What could I have done? And, you know, we talk a lot about that. And I think primary school we spend so much of our time talking about those life lessons that I suppose in a way secondary schools don't get to focus on them as much because you've got your categorised subjects that you're teaching, whereas primary school classroom teachers are with the same students every day Mm. for every subject. So if there's a great learning opportunity to focus on at that very moment, well, then we can say let's not do our writing right now. Let's spend some more time on that social-emotional learning, which is so important. And I suppose we have a big role thinking about it in that way to make the most of those opportunities and being flexible. So many teachers probably wouldn't take those opportunities, but I see them as being more important than the curriculum sometimes. I absolutely agree. But I think too, even reflecting on my own teaching, it wasn't until I became confident in my delivery that I was able to let the walls down a little bit. As a teacher, I wanted to be so good at delivering information and knowing everything that once I felt like I knew the curriculum well enough, I could let down the walls to show that I was human. But it took a long time for me to feel confident and comfortable to be human in front of the kids. But I think I was a much better teacher for it. We all struggle with these things. And this is why I'm having you guys on in the podcast too. We all struggle with stuff. No one has it all together. And I think the more we can celebrate that, the more normal it feels to not be perfect. Yeah. And it's not all about content, is it? I think that's what university teaches you, that it's about content delivery and the curriculum and ticking all these boxes. But if we make sure the students are happy, settled, socially, emotionally confident, 
all of those life skills are there, then the learning will just happen more naturally Mm. and you don't need to spend as much time focusing on that content. So mentioning uni, what are some of the memorable things you learnt while studying primary education at uni? It's really hard. My answer straight up is not much. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I learnt most on teaching rounds. Yeah. But unfortunately, the university I went to didn't have any student placements in their first year. So Mm. the first year was all theory-based and really had no relevance because as a teacher, we know that there needs to be connection. And there was no connection because we hadn't experienced being teachers yet. Mm. We only had our experience as students. So the first year, it was the attendance was quite good. There was lots of students enrolled. And then the second year, as soon as teaching rounds started, the dropout numbers were huge. Mm -hmm. And I really feel sorry for those students because I feel like they wasted a year. Anyway, that was one of the downfalls of the university. But I suppose the best component of the university was maths. They had quite a strong maths foundation and it was all about making it hands-on and appropriate for children. And they made us go out and find children who we knew and interview them and trial tasks on them to see how it went. And I think that because it was practical like that and actually engaged children, that that was the best component of university. And I I still use those tasks to this day and the curriculum understanding in maths. What about the emotional support? Some of my friends who did the Bachelor of Education talk about learning about certain developmental phases and all of that. And I mean, I did a dip ed. So for me, it was baptism by fire. I had one year, I did (laughs) 10 weeks of rounds in that year and I was teaching. That was it. But I would say something similar about my university time. It wasn't until I was in the classroom doing the teaching rounds that I learned really anything about teaching. So I'm interested. Obviously, I didn't have the time in those tutorials and in those lectures to learn as much as you would have in the bachelor. Again, I think that even though there was a lot of theory and there were some lectures about social emotional learning, it still the relevance wasn't there because we were still young Mm. ourselves. You know, we were, I was 17 when I started university. I didn't know how students were socially emotionally. They definitely did it, but it's not really until you're out there working with children day in, day out, talking to parents, learning from other mentor teachers that you really get a good understanding. And it makes me question all the time, is the model of university and teaching rounds the right model for teaching? If it was more of an apprenticeship, Mm. I think it would be more relevant. Mm. The theory would come with it and it would be more meaningful. I've had quite a few fourth year students and they still say that they learn more on their rounds than they do at university. I've mentored three or four student teachers now. Two of them I I know were mature age and one was quite young, maybe in her second year. And I think that she wasn't technically supposed to do any teaching. I think it was she was there purely for observation and I offered her the chance to teach and it was so scary and she hated every minute of it. Mm. And I gave her a really beautiful class and I worded them up and they were really nice Mm -hmm. and no criticism to her, but I had to speak to her at the end of it and say, why are you teaching? Like, why do you want to teach? Because Mm. she was fine and happy following me around for the day, but to be offered the opportunity to teach, and this was her second year, she was Mm. like terrified. And I think that old adage of, you know, if you can't do teach is such a ridiculous one. 
because who wants to go into a room with people that sometimes no interest being there and do all this work and perform because that's what it is every day it's a performance really you don't yeah. you can't you know sit at your computer and time out you are working and up there at the center of attention why would you do that if you hated it with kids criticizing you yeah. they don't even like you or they don't like you being there or they want to do something else yeah. you know it's not like people have paid for my presence <laughs> you know what i mean they don't want me there you know they'd prefer yeah. to be doing other things yeah why yeah. would you do that to yourself your heart really has to be in it and to keep yourself motivated because you do have days where you do feel like you're on stage all the time, especially in primary school if you've got parent helpers as well. Mm. So then you've got the added pressure of parents judging you. I really feel for the teachers at the moment actually who are constantly being streamed in lounge rooms all over Australia. You know, the judgment is definitely there and I feel for them. So you went through the Catholic education system from primary, secondary and then the tertiary system. What part did that play for you in education or did it play no part? Look, it's interesting. I haven't chosen Catholic education for my own children, but I do believe that it established strong values and ethics along the way. It was quite a nurturing environment. In some ways, I feel that we're quite sheltered (laughs) through our education and even through university. I mean, our university was not like other universities. It was very small and boutique almost in lots of ways. And then I only ended up teaching in the Catholic system when I graduated for two years and then I've been in independent and then more recently in a state school. So it hasn't given me the strong desire to stay in the Catholic system. I know some people, once they started you know, in the Catholic system, they stayed. Mm. I have a strong belief that children can learn anywhere and mm. it's more about the mindset of the child and maybe in primary school more the mindset of the family supporting them Mm. and I don't think it's necessarily about the religion or the money that you're paying for the child to go to a certain school it's yeah it's definitely because you can see it from the children that excel and they get Mm. enter scores of 99 plus in state schools so if the drive that is there it's anything's possible so what was the reason you got into teaching in the first place it's a question I've been asked a lot and I think you do get asked a lot as a teacher. Why did you want to be a teacher? Maybe because people think we're crazy. Um, It happened in year year nine and it was a maths class. I remember it quite clearly. I remember the teacher's name, but I won't mention her. And she was teaching us Pythagoras. And there were so many moans coming from around the classroom because people weren't getting it. And for some reason, I... I wouldn't I wouldn't see myself as a strong mm. math student. I was I was average in all areas, but on this particular day I was able to figure out how to get the answers to the angles, but I used a different formula to her, and I don't know if it was the right way, but I tried it on multiple equations and it kept working. So I went up to her and I said, "Excuse me, I think I found a different way." And this was between her and I, private conversation, and she tested it. It worked tested again at work she said okay then get up and tell the class show the class wow and she gave me a piece of chalk because it was a blackboard (laughs) and she said teach the class your way anyway I got a round of applause Mm. and people said oh your way's better I get it now Um, and that was the moment I thought maybe this is what I could do that's really that's a good story before then I wanted to be an interior designer so it was a big just that one moment and I'm so pleased that she gave me that opportunity, but it wasn't a happy 
<laughs> it wasn't a happy gesture by any means. She was angry at me, but it was a life-changing moment for me. So what you think she put you up there almost to fail? Was that the what was the point? Yeah, I think she did. Oh, really? Yeah, she she thought I was she thought I was being, you know, I don't want to swear, but she thought I was being a smarty pants. <laughs> Um, but I wasn't, I was really, You're such a primary teacher. <laughs> I, I wanted reassurance from her that the way I was doing it was okay. That's what I, yeah. I didn't want to make a mockery of her or anything, but yeah, definitely a life-changing moment. I think it's really interesting. I've had a few conversations now with current students at the moment and also students I've taught before, and all of them have made the comment that it's so important to be understood by a teacher. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm interested in that situation that you've just given me, the fact that I would feel that it would be very clear based on who you are that you are not going to try and undermine the teacher. No. So did you feel like you were really seen as a student? The thing that stands out to me is I just remember the look on her face and the anger in her eyes. And I remember being quite confused thinking, why is she being like this to me? And I think as a teacher, Now, I know that we're there to support students and we shouldn't be putting them in situations to fail or wanting them to fail. Mm. Like when you give students a test, do we want them to fail or do we want them to succeed? Because in a way, it's a reflection on us as educators. Yeah. That's our job to to get these students through their education and finish with a smile on their face not upset with themselves or seen as failures. Yeah, so it was an interesting day. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good story though. Mm. I don't know what my story is. I literally <laughs> went to the careers council one day and she's like, why don't you do this? I was like, okay. I had no idea. And yeah. you know, the crazy thing is I did an undergrad in arts and science that whole time with no teaching until my fifth year. Yeah. Imagine if I'd hated it. Like yeah. it could have been, it could have gone so bad. <laughs> I think about that all the time. I could have hated it. And what a waste. I think because your mum was a teacher. I mean, I think that mm. teaching I find often does run in a family. You'll often hear of teachers whose parents or aunties or uncles are also teachers. Not in my family, but in yours. <laughs> you know what's funny though is I never, and this is awful, I never saw her as a teacher Yeah. because she taught at tertiary and I feel bad. I really reflect on myself as a teenager. <laughs> Don't and I we feel, all If only we could do teenagers again. I know. And I think, <laughs> I think I didn't, really allow her into things and I thought she didn't Mm. understand and she was a teacher but because she taught in the tertiary setting I just felt like she just was completely disconnected from my life and just couldn't didn't understand I must admit that that's why I always wanted to go into high school because I felt that was a time where I felt Mm -hmm. yeah the most misunderstood I think from adults I wanted to be the one that understood Mm. my kids in that time because I think it's really important well it's interesting I was I'd always planned on being a secondary school science teacher oh really it wasn't until my second year when I did my first rounds in a five, six class that I decided I wouldn't want to teach any higher than that. That was enough attitude for me. <laughs> <laughs> Another reason was because the university had made a mistake in their science curriculum. Instead of doing my major in science, it had changed to a major in science studies, oh. which wasn't the same qualification. So I would have had to do, I think a year and a semester again Mm. in science or make it up somehow. So it it was lucky that I didn't want to go any higher than year six. Yeah, fair enough. By that stage. Do you have a teacher that made a big impression on you or one that you wanted to emulate? Yes, definitely um, grade four teacher. 
I think she was a favourite throughout our primary school. She was just, at the time, I didn't see her as being young, but now I look back, I know that she was quite young. She had a son herself who wasn't much younger than myself. She was just so creative, energetic, imaginative. In lots of ways, I now look back, she was quite progressive. Mm. She didn't follow the same structures that all the other teachers had followed throughout primary school and even after her didn't follow. I just remembered her classroom was just so colourful and child-centred. She had the best blackboard drawings. (laughs) I don't know if you remember that awesome part of primary school. No, but you come in after the new term and they'd change the blackboard and it was like, oh, yeah. what, have they, what have they drawn on the blackboard? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember. This is why I couldn't be a primary yeah. school teacher. God. I remember these awesome book reading corners with lots of cushions and it just, she made it feel more like mm. home. And even the learning, I remember our inquiry projects were things that we were interested in doing and we couldn't wait to get home to do these projects. And, you know, she was... Yeah, she was quite inspirational when I think back. And I always wanted to and aspired to be a teacher just like her and make my students want to come to school and be sad when it was holidays. Did you feel sad when it was holidays in her class? Yeah, it was definitely mm. a happy place to be Yeah, in grade nice. four. And, and it's such a critical time as well. I think that, you know, that prepubescent time is so critical in students' development and their appreciation of themselves and I just think she made she made it fun and she made everyone interact in a positive way. And Yeah, I like that. She was awesome. I've had a couple of conversations actually again with secondary students in which they've all been very clear about the fact that 7 to 10 was just whatever. You just get it done because you have to. And then when they get to 11 and 12, that's when they're knuckled down. And I'm wondering if you have an idea from a primary perspective how we begin to instill that joy back into learning so it's not just to get it done but it's to actually be excited by the process. Uh, I think that primary school versus secondary school is very different in that that one when you're with that one teacher in that one classroom, the relationship with the teacher is quite strong and they really get to know the student as an mm. individual, not just as a learner. They know whether they've had a bad night. They know what's happening at home. They have a lot more insight. The parents are a lot yeah. more connected to the teacher as well and to the school. The, you know, parents talk about that community feel and how they just want that for their secondary school students as well. But it, it's just a natural progression that that starts to dissipate in a way. But so getting back to the question, year seven to 10, I think that some secondary schools have that quite strong homeroom focus, which could help in some ways in getting that those relationships and making sure that all the teachers Mm. are across the board, you know, to cut some students slack if things aren't going well at home, you know, really having that compassion. If they're rolling their eyes about a certain task, maybe there's a reason for that. And really making sure that the students are connected and they understand the tasks and so forth. I know I've gone off on a little tangent there. But I think you're right. I think like if I think about it myself, I was teaching five classes each class had 26 kids. My maths is not great, but what's over 125 yeah. kids that I would see. That's huge. You know, over that week. I mean, obviously, I'm not going to be able to connect that way with every single one of those 125 students. It's just not no. possible, especially if I'm doing it in under an hour. Yeah. And I, I really got more of an insight into how 
difficult it is for secondary school students last year when mm-hmm. I was a specialist teacher. So I saw the whole primary school from prep to year six mm-hmm. in three days. And it mm-hmm. you just couldn't. There'd be a student that was totally disengaged and you'd try and engage with them and they wouldn't. And it wasn't until maybe yeah. three weeks later that you found out yeah. that their parents had broken up or their dog had died. You know, and I would look back and think, oh, gosh, I feel so bad that I didn't I didn't take it easier on them that day or I didn't go and have a quiet chat to them to yeah. check in to see if they were okay. Mm. But you just don't know and yeah. you can only do what you can do. But I think it's it comes back to making sure that schools have strong leadership in that regard and that the social emotional learning is given mm. more of a priority because if students aren't happy, they're not going to be learning. So it's really and I think that COVID is actually going to help in that way because the curriculum has been pulled back a lot. And I hope that afterwards our curriculum won't be as crowded and that more time and energy can be spent on students' mental health, mm. even from primary school right through, because we've got to make sure that they're ready to learn. I think even with my young kids, I'm trying really hard at the moment and I catch myself because I see my own parenting reflect how I was parented. And not to say that it's negative, but -hmm. society was quite different. I mean, I'm an 80s baby, you know, society is very different. Mm -hmm. And I think that we were, we were criticized for having certain emotions and for behaving in certain ways. And we were expected to conform. And I think that that goes across the board. I don't think I'm singling my parents out in that. And for me, I'm trying really hard to disassociate for myself so I can do it for my kids the negative and positive labels I put on emotion because emotions are just emotions. Some are more comfortable to feel mm-hmm. than others, but there's nothing wrong with feeling anything. Yeah, I agree. And I've been trying that to say that to my own children throughout this current climate, that it's okay to feel angry. It's okay to feel frustrated, but let's not handle it that way. Yeah. <laughs> let's not have a wrestle on the trampoline. Let's instead <laughs> talk about it. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's, it, it is really important to validate those emotions because especially yeah. with boys, they need to learn that mm. it is okay to feel that way, but let's just work together to find out how to channel that energy or those feelings. And same with our, our students at school. Yeah. So how long have you been teaching now? 16 years, but with four kids in between, there's been, I've done some part-time work. I've been in a variety of schools you know I would often put my name down for CRT work and say I'm available at these days every time I got signed up to do some type of part-time job so I've picked up lots of random jobs one time I was a prep performing arts and art teacher one day a week which was awesome when I look back I think wow that was a, a great job so I've been very lucky and I've had great experiences and taught in a variety of schools So based on that 16 years experience plus the university plus being a student yourself for so many years, what do you see the role of a teacher to be? So I think the role of a teacher is really to inspire lifelong learning and without that skill, where's their future? Because learning never stops and and I've said it already, but students really need to be happy and equipped with the emotional resilience to deal with life along with practical Mm. skills you know, being able to organise themselves. And it starts in prep. I've taught prep out of those 16 years. For about 14 years, I've taught prep. And, you know, just teaching them to be organised and independent and know, have I put my lunchbox in? Do I know how to pack my bag? 
all of those skills as basic as they sound, if they don't have those skills, then, you know, you would see it at secondary school. Yeah. The ones that, yeah, the ones that can't organize themselves. And you think, how are they going to function as adults in society without those skills? And another thing, I think our role as a teacher is changing so, so much. And I I think back to when I started at a particular school, we did a lot of wondering and, you know, students would ask a question and we'd often not answer it for them. We'd say, what do you think? Well, I think that those days are changing. And as a teacher, our role is more, Mm. well, how are you going to access that answer? Yeah, We're more dealing with the Google it generation because that's what their answer is now. You know, I'd try and answer, oh, I wonder wonder how that tree does grow that way or why does it grow those fruits? And now they just say, Google it, just Google it. And so for us as teachers, our role now is – how to get students to use that information which we all have access to because we've all got phones, we've all got the internet and how to use it creatively and uniquely in order to function in their jobs in the future, however that may be. Will they have one job? Will they have multiple? How will they be skilled in the future? I'm not sure how that will look. I also think too teaching the skill of discernment is really important when you have all the information at your fingertips. How do you identify the best information, the most accurate information, the best sourced information? You know, I think that is also a skill that I'm even still trying to learn myself when you have access to everything. How do you discern Mm -hmm. what to listen to and what to look at? Yeah. And I suppose that comes back to the person then and whether they've got the confidence to use their judgment and other life skills to make the best decisions and think for themselves, not just mm. rely on the information, be a creative thinker, be innovative. But yeah, it's, it's challenging times and it's not getting easier. I think it's getting harder. It definitely is getting harder. And I also think too, I don't know if I was equipped with those skills as a student. I don't know about you. I didn't know. There's a school I've been teaching at and they really try to instill that independence in students. And it wasn't until I started teaching at that school where I could see the value in that you know people hear it and they say oh yeah independence Mm. yep sure we need it but when you really break that down that's what we're teaching we're teaching these children to be adults one day yeah and we've got a huge responsibility and it's not just the parents the teachers have that role too but in saying that it's more effective if the parents and the teachers are working together Yeah, I don't think there's ever a time in which one outweighs the other, to be honest. I think that the responsibility has to be shared. And I think, especially getting into high school, there are then other role models that have to be brought in, whether that's, you know, a basketball coach or a counsellor or whatever. I do think that, unfortunately, the parents do get more resistance, the Mm -hmm. older kids tend to get. So I think that as a community, we need to bring in role models that work with both parents, teachers, Mm -hmm. students, and create a wider net for those kids. And I think that during this time of remote learning, I think that, you know, parents joke about how hard it is at home and I'm doing it. I I know how it feels, but I think... um, You've got four kids there. Yeah. I think it's giving parents that appreciation of teachers. And I think that the teachers that have felt so threatened by parents in the past because they are so much of the teacher or they question authority. I think a lot of that is going to um, step back yeah. and I hope it does because 
there are not many professions that get questioned more so than teachers. I think parents' hearts are in the right place, but they need to also trust us. We don't, as a society, we don't tend to question surgeons or accountants. We trust them. And I think that parents really need to trust us. And we need to work together as a team, not as yeah. Um, yeah. enemies. Yeah. Do you know what? The two areas in my life, which are big areas that I've been really questioned and I've had other people that perhaps aren't as qualified as me making opinions or giving me opinions are being a teacher because everyone's been in a classroom in some way, shape or form and being a mother Yes, because everyone's had a maternal figure in some way and they all feel like either how it was done for them is better or worse Mm -hmm. and then I need to hear about it. So those are two and pretty much that's 75% of my identity right there. Mm And I have a lot of comments and criticisms on those two facets of my life. Yeah. So, and, and look, well, you're the same. Yeah, constantly. You know, yeah. they intertwine in lots of ways as well. I think, um, mm-hmm. yeah, teaching and parenthood. I mean, I feel like I've changed as a teacher since becoming a parent in lots of ways. Yeah. And you would reflect on that as well. And some of the, may I say, nutty parents who <laughs> will come to <laughs> chat to me about XYZ, I think. Oh, yeah, I I get that now. <laughs> um, yeah, okay. You know, you have that, that insight and you can, you have yeah. more of perspective. Yeah, and empathy, I suppose, yeah. or sympathy maybe. Yeah. Yeah, for that situation. I shouldn't say nutty. I love that you said nutty. As teachers, we, we, joke, we joke about the helicopter parents, but as a parent, we'll all be there in some way, shape or form one day. But it's just yeah. working together and having that trust that where teachers yeah. generally yeah. are doing their best and their heart is in the right place and we can't be perfect. Yeah. But I, th- I think in every way, criticism doesn't really get you to the place you want to go. Working together and sharing perspectives and understanding one another is the best way forward in every way of life, I think. Yeah. As I said, this current climate will actually help in so many ways I mean no one would Mm. want to go through 2020 again with what's going on but I hope that as a teacher we see learning opportunities and I think Mm. there is so much to learn from this year and so much to take away for parents for teachers the whole education system and I think there'll be lots of positive growth well what's that saying something like um you don't develop unless you're uncomfortable or you know through discomfort we evolve it's not nice but it is what it is I guess true so what are you really passionate about as a teacher and what do you want to instill in your students as a teacher I've always wanted to show children that learning can be fun and it's something that we continue to do it doesn't just stop in the four walls of the classroom and I try and be quite a normal person I suppose in the classroom I try not to be that performer Mm. I try to let them see me as a human who makes mistakes. Mm. I let them know about my weekend. Uh, I let them know about my family life. And I think that that really helps children to connect and see that we keep learning. It doesn't stop. And that's, I think, the biggest goal for me as a teacher. Yeah. So how do we make learning relevant then? I think um, it's really listening to the students and looking at what is relevant to them in that day and in that moment. Often in primary school, they'll bring toys to school or talk about the latest video games or interests that they have. And instead of trying to block that, let's go with Mm. it. Let's use those learning opportunities and make it relevant to them. Yes, we might criticise this video game, but actually, is there any learning that we could take Mm. from that? It's 
it's like, I suppose, for secondary school students, they're all about social media. What can we use social media for? How can we make it a positive tool? Let's not criticise all the time. Let's learn how to use it safely. Let's see if it, if you are so passionate about it, what can we do to make this a learning opportunity and to help us? And I think it takes the support of a school to be able to do that. And I've been lucky to work in independent schools that are open to those ideas. We hear yes rather than no. And I now know how lucky I am to have heard yes when I've had these crazy ideas. But it does take a school. Schools need to take risks. And I think that's something that we encourage in our students to take risks. Schools need to take those risks as well to maximise learning opportunities and making it relevant to students. I think the go-to for education often is to shut something down if there is potential risk associated. And I can, I really can see why, you know, like I had a conversation yeah. with a teacher friend of mine regarding social media because I'm concerned that kids don't have the right role models in social media and schools are not wanting to talk yeah. about it. And so that's my concern is, well, when where do they learn? I mean, some of these, some kids will be influencers. Like, isn't that a ridiculous term? But that's that's a reality for these people. Yeah. <laughs> like, I want to be an influencer. Yeah. What? Like, imagine being at high school. You've been laughed out of high school, but that's a, yeah. that's a thing now. People can influence people purely by yeah. taking photos and having nice graphics on a social media platform. So that's a reality and that's a job for people to have. On the flip side, though, yeah. on the flip side, though, you know, I had – a psychologist on here not that long ago and she's talking about the really detrimental impacts of the fact that social media never stops and if they're on it then they are constantly being engaged by it and if they go off and they're missing out on the social interaction and so I do see both sides to it but oh definitely I as you say there is a learning opportunity there and I think we do have a responsibility to show the kids boundaries to show the kids how to shop online to be discerning because their their young minds are very impressionable and if we are not part of making that impression, where does it come from? And I suppose the thing with social media, we can't stop it. Mm. It's here now. So we really have a huge role in educating them to use it, use it appropriately and to make those decisions now. I mean, my son is in year three. He's got his own laptop now. And at the start of this year when they were at school, they spent a lot of time learning about cyber safety. They've had experts come into the school, experts available for parents, about really getting it right from the start before they get into secondary school and start making those decisions and looking at role models that may not be their best choice. So I think we do have a big role and it needs to start when they're young. Yeah. I agree. Because it's just going to, yeah, it's not going. No, you're right. What do you believe are the solid foundations and essential skills that students need to have by the end of primary school? So by the end of primary school, I think they need to have a really solid, really solid literacy skills. If you're not literate, then you'll have trouble accessing most subject areas. And for example, maths, if you're given a maths problem and you can't read it, then you're not going to be able to solve it. And I think the creativity and independence is really important too, because you need to be able to think in order to apply those skills. So you might have strong literacy and math skills, but what are you going to use them for? How can you apply them to real world context? And to do that, you really need to be able to be creative and not rely on the person next to you, copy their answers. You need to be able to think for yourself. But I think that that comes from the idea that it's less important to be right and it's more important to have yes. a go. Yeah, and learning from those mistakes that we talked about earlier. Mm. It's 
so important that students feel comfortable in their own skin to make those decisions. But then as they get older, you know, we were talking about it, they start to look at the other people and what are they doing? Is it cool to get it right? Should I try and be the class clown? Should I, should I try and work really hard on this? What are people going to think? So it's really making sure that they feel comfortable in their own skin as well and be who they want to be, follow their own passions. Well, I think as teachers, we need to be really responsible for removing the shame around being criticised, you know, and and again, reframing that to empowered, you know, okay, so you've stumbled across this. What have you now learnt from this experience? How can you put that into creating a better decision next time? But I think even myself, I don't like to be told off now in my 30s. I don't like it. It makes me feel uncomfortable. And I think that that's come from a long line of conditioning that if I'm told off, it means I'm wrong. And then there's there's that association with shame there. So I think that we do need to to try and change the way that we deal with criticism to make it not Mm -hmm. so negative and more a positive learning curve somehow. Yeah. And as long as it's delivered, the criticism's delivered in the right way. You know, yelling at students is obviously not going to get the desired result and they're not going to learn from those mistakes because they'll just shut down and they won't listen. So, yeah, but that wouldn't happen if you had a strong relationship either, would it? Because... I know. I yell at my own children sometimes. Uh, own children that's different <laughs> school children um. yeah and and look we all know yelling isn't right but yes it does happen at home sometimes because you just reach breaking point and I think yeah. because you're more comfortable in your own home and yeah but yeah at school seeing eye to eye with those students and I don't think that we should be friends with our students but no we need to get to know them well enough that we get them yeah But I think that that's the boundary that teachers have to tread all the time is Mm. allowing there to be an element of personability without crossing that line to learning about inappropriate things that are going on in their lives. And I think that every teacher needs to create that really strong boundary always. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, otherwise you're just opening yourself up for difficult situations and reportable situations. That's it. And that's, yeah. What kind of advice would you give to pre-service teachers? You can't do it all. And I think after university, you hear so many ideas, especially on your placements. You think, I want to make sure I've got that chart in my room. I want to make sure I'm following these guidelines and covering all of this curriculum and doing all of these fantastic new games and had XYZ games that I've laminated and you just can't do it all. Mm. And I remember my first year, I spent so long making the best lesson plans and the greatest resources and you just burn out. Yeah. So I hear this advice a lot that you just can't do it all, but you really can't. You've really just got to focus on the essentials and make sure you've got a great mentor teacher to work alongside and keep it real for you. Make sure that you're getting enough sleep, you're caring for yourself because it is an exhausting year. And other things to remember are to be flexible because things do not go right all yeah. the time, ever. Yeah. You never get through the content that you think you're going to get through. Things will come up. Randomly, you'll have to teach an extra subject or you might have to do an extra yard duty so you don't have that lunch time to prepare resources. Mm. So you really need to be flexible. Adapt to the students because what you've planned may not be relevant at all. And our aim is to get them to learn, not to follow your, your lesson plan. Mm. And it's about listening to the students, spending that time to get to know them. Don't jump straight into teaching Pythagoras or fractions or comprehension if they're not ready. Let's say you you might need to spend some time talking about the fires 
that mm. happened or the fact that COVID has happened this year. You might need to spend more time on that versus the curriculum and really listen to students because we're so pivotal in their lives. And it's when you think back to primary school or secondary school, you remember the teachers that you had relationships with and you remember the subjects that you connected with. So really spend more time on that side of things. And whenever there's opportunities to get experience in the classroom, take it. Mm. Do extra days. Try and buddy up with schools or teachers where you can volunteer. Get as much experience as you can. While at university? Yeah. Yeah. What is your thought on intertwining subjects and having interdisciplinary projects rather than separate a curriculum? Um, I think it's really important because if we look at the current education system with separate subjects, and even so, even at primary school, even though you're with the same class for most of the day, you're su- still supposed to generally separate the subjects. IB schools are slightly different, but there's still that expectation, and you can see it on their school mm-hmm. reports English, maths, inquiry, art etc. But the education system dates back to the Industrial Revolution where subjects were separated. But if you think about it as an adult, we don't ever just do maths for one hour (laughs) and then quickly uh, write the shopping list and only use our English skills. We're constantly using life skills in multiple ways in multiple moments. So it doesn't make sense to teach them in separate ways. How this how this can be changed? It's huge. I don't know how yeah, I'm with you. it can be changed into the ideal model. Some countries do it better than others. I think Australia is quite backwards in this way. But I think primary school, it makes it easier. And yeah. we do have a bit more flexibility, but there's a long way to go, definitely. Yeah, I agree. There's no doubt that I think every teacher could see that there are flaws within the education system. I think that they're relatively obvious, but how to make that change or how to do it better I'm not going to put my hand up for that. I don't know. And I don't know. I don't know how we could do it. It, I suppose um, if we look at the end product, it comes back to VCE and VCE is still segregated subjects. So until that changed, we can't really change it from the beginning either because they're aiming for that end outcome. And the thing is, at the end of the day, an ATAS score is not a score that identifies your intelligence. It's a score that is based on exams and, you know, the subjects that you've chosen and and the cohort that you're in, like there's so many other external factors that get that ATAS score. And ultimately, all an ATAS score does is allow you a place in a university based on the popularity of a particular subject. So there's so many facets that would have to shift in order to change the entire system. And as I said, I don't know how that happens. And ultimately, we are really kind of pawns in a way to the university entrance, really. Yeah. And this one school that I've taught at luckily has formed relationships with universities in trying to allow students to get into their desired course without having that, an ATAR score, basing it on portfolios, interviews, and so forth. And then there have always been subjects where that was allowed to happen. Yeah. I mean, courses where that was allowed to happen. But are there more? For example, teaching. The teaching score is not very high. Mm. It should be higher based on our level of responsibility and expectation but could it be placed on could it be more based on our ability to connect with students and have people observe lessons look at our curriculum development there's so many things that they could be looking at versus just our score because students aren't allowed to follow their passions when it comes 
down to their ATAR score in lots of ways. Yeah. I didn't get to pursue art because I was told by a careers advisor that I wouldn't get a high enough score. So I had to ditch what I loved and pick up subjects like accounting where I couldn't get my profit and loss statement to balance in the exam (laughs) to try and get a higher score, which is ridiculous because it didn't balance, yet that subject gave me a higher score than if I'd done art and I'd blitzed it. Yeah. It's just, yeah, lots of flaws that we can't fix right now. That's right. But again, we come back to that score because – the only reason teaching is a lower score is because it's not as popular, right? If teaching mm. was deemed, I don't know, what's a good word for it, deemed impressive by society, mm-hmm. like being a doctor or a lawyer yes. that have really, really high scores, then perhaps teaching would be a higher score. And not that I'm saying that it's better to be a higher score, but that's all it is. And yes, obviously, in order to do some of these really high-profile jobs like medicine, physio, all of those things, you do need to be school smart to get that ATAR score to get in. But it's not necessarily because you have to be so well, – I don't know, I'm kind of mixing yeah. myself up here, I guess. But do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's a societal ideal of what is deemed a better job over another job. And I think that still comes down probably to yeah. money and to status. And that's, again, mm-hmm. a societal yeah. expectation and construct that is filtered down into education as well. And it might be based on also – the people at the top making these decisions, if they think back to their education and what they experienced and maybe teachers were seen more as babysitters who sat up the front and read some material and that was it. But teaching is much more than that and teaching is evolving and we have such a huge responsibility. If you think about it, we're given so many children to look after, not just, you know, especially when they're quite young. Our duty of care is so high. Think about an excursion, you know, just keeping them safe and getting them back to school is a huge responsibility, let alone the the Mm. learning that needs to happen at the same time. Yet teaching still isn't valued in society. It's just such a shame. Yeah, I think that this year will bring about some changes though. Yeah, I think you're right. Those parents are struggling. They need us. (laughs) That's right. That's right. (laughs) What are your favourite learning environments and why? Do you think the classroom is the best place to learn? Well, I think we're seeing right now that the home is a a really important place to learn as well. But more so, students love to learn outdoors and that's a passion of mine. And I've been lucky enough to have done quite a few courses on outdoor education and the importance and how it's so critical to brain development. So I don't think that the four walls are the best. And sitting at a desk with a pencil and paper or a pen and paper isn't necessarily learning and that's a perception that society has that that's the only way to learn. Yeah, Learning can happen in so many ways and we just need to be more open-minded and it's not just about taking the pencil and paper outside yeah. and sitting on a rock to do the writing. Yeah. It's about looking at learning opportunities outdoors or on excursions or on camps and really making the most of that. And it's much more relevant to students. We think back to our own childhoods, what are our best memories? Holidays, excursions, camps, being outside. I had a favourite game, throwing lemons over the top of the house. <laughs> I mean, now I'm sure there was angles I I knew which angle to throw it at to maximise my throwing opportunities. I was learning about maths in there somehow and also some engineering maybe too and who knows. But, yeah, it's just making the learning relevant to students and real life. I think accidental learning is my favourite kind of learning. And I remember 
in year seven yeah. science, I would do a Rube Goldberg machine, which is, you know, it's kind of like a mouse track where one thing hits one thing and then hits the next thing and it all kind of goes off in this succession. And the kids used to love doing that. They would go home, they would experiment with things, they'd bring things in and t- the whole thing's about physics and they had yeah. no idea. And yeah. the way that they collaborated with each yeah. other, they had to problem solve. And usually what I would do is I would take parts of that machine and then look at some of the elements and then explain the physics behind it. But it was good because it's something that they'd created and so they had an investment in it. And so that's always been my favourite type of learning where possible. Yeah, and, and if you ask those students what their favourite part of school, it was probably doing that Yeah. versus the time that they had to answer some questions in a book. Yeah. You currently have two boys home remote learning as well as two children not yet at school age. How are you juggling that? We have our good and bad days. (laughs) And I think the hardest thing for me, but in a selfish way, is that Fletcher is our last baby and it's my last year of maternity leave. And I did not want to teach in 2020. That wasn't my plan. (laughs) Teach formally anyway. But here I am. So um, anyway, look, I mean, no one can predict what was going to happen this year. So we just have to go with the flow and do our best you know, as parents, as teachers, as children. And I feel for them the most because we have the, I think we have the ability to to know that, yes, this seems like it's going to go on forever, but there will be an end. But for children, I really feel for them because they live day to day and to them this seems like an eternity that they've been living like this. And it's sad to think that masks be part of their everyday and will they – ever be able to lick their fingers after they eat a sugary bun or you know all of those little things that we used to take for granted so I think for students and for your own children I think it's just making sure that there's some happiness in their days and during first remote learning we tried different reward systems but this time I feel like we've we've hit the nail on the head and Uh. we've got a little reward system going where we've got a goal for Friday so on Friday they get to choose a special lunch order to be delivered or a special treat that they're working towards so if they get all their schoolwork done and then they also have a long-term goal so a present that they they would love to receive in the mail and today my boys got their first Amazon delivery this toy that they really wanted and to them that took away from all of the apprehension at the moment in society and they're just living for those moments so I think as parents and as teachers it's about giving children hope and enjoyment and joy because we don't want the joy to go. And as much as we know that it won't be forever, yeah, it could be here with us for a while. So we've just got to make this the new norm in a way. So how much have you told your kids about COVID and what's actually happening? At the start, we were quite open with them. And then we could see that our second eldest was actually showing a lot of signs of anxiety. Yeah. I actually ended up taking him to a psychologist. And I decided then and chatted to my husband about it, about really not talking about it and if we need to talk about it talking about it in code a bit more our eldest he he does a bit more at school where you know he'll have to read particular articles relevant to children about covid and how other countries may be coping and things that they're doing he can handle it a bit more but i think it's really important to think about their age and how socially emotionally equipped they are to handle that information my second one he's quite a deep thinker and i think he was yeah, reading maybe too much into it. and yeah. But it's that maturity. He's only been alive for seven years. Yeah. He doesn't know that what the future will look like. He doesn't know what next week will look like. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've just been trying to make every day a good day in some way, Yeah, whether it's a chat to a friend or ringing Nan on FaceTime. So, yeah. 
I mean, I think the hard part for me with my kids so little is, you know, having to navigate the mask, especially, I mean, you've got Mm -hmm. your daughter who's not much older than my son. So what, two and a half, is she two and a half? Mm -hmm. Yeah, two and a half. You know, the fact that I can't hide the mask, that's a reality now. We're wearing masks and the first time I put it on, Mm -hmm. he burst into tears. So I found that quite challenging. And also to see an 18-month-old, which is how old he was when it was all starting, understand to sanitize his hands Mm -hmm. walking in places. You see him now, he has his hands out ready to go. And I think, God, what a world we're living in. That a little boy has his hands out ready to sanitize his own hands. It's a challenging one in terms of how much they need to know. Mm how we navigate telling them things without lying to their faces, you know, about things that we can't hide. Yeah, that's it. We don't hide it from them. It's just that we don't talk about the doom and gloom as much anymore, especially what's happening overseas because it's kind of Adam's routine when he gets home from work. He he lets me know what's going on in the world because I don't have time to read a newspaper. (laughs) During the day I'm busy with four kids. So... (laughs) He can't digest the news to me anymore, pretty much. There's there's not much good news out there. But we talk in code Mm. if we need to. What advice would you give to parents homeschooling? I think it's really important that people find what works for their family because schools are doing their best to deliver programs that cater to everybody, but everybody's home situation is so different at the moment. I keep thinking how lucky Mm. it is that I'm not teaching this year. I really feel for my friends who are teachers and parents trying to juggle both it's just impossible to give all of yourself to one area at the moment and you just can't do it Uh, so it's finding Mm -hmm. that balance and making sure that just as we would at school trying to make sure that people are happy because if they're not happy they're not going to be learning or coping so pick your battles do what you can don't do it all do more if you want to but find what's right for you and communicate with the teacher I mean my boys haven't been able to get through all of the content sometimes sometimes they've done more I just send the teacher an email and say this is what they're doing for writing this Mm -hmm. week I hope that's okay this is why or don't even need to offer an explanation you know you've got to do what you can do at the moment and crying meltdowns and battles are not worth it for anyone's sanity yeah my mantra at the moment with the kids is I'm doing the best I can and I actually heard my own daughter say that back to me today oh that's gorgeous when I was asking her to clean something I said oh I said can you do that she goes I'm just doing the best I can and I said well you know what that's all I can ask of you that's a beautiful moment you've been a teacher she's learned from you (laughs) oh I don't know if I was quite so calm when I said I'm doing the best I can but you know I'm I'm trying. Really hard. Yeah. But, you know, we've got to be kinder to ourselves, I think. Nobody's perfect and this is the perfect time in a way to show how everybody is just in the same boat. And I was actually speaking to someone the other day that said this has actually provided a really nice equalising moment. You know, she's in Zoom meetings with the CEO and the cat walks across the screen or someone's having a heated argument with an irritating child or whatever. And it just goes to show that we are all human, no matter the position that we hold, no matter the money in our bank accounts. You know, we're all kind of muddling through right now together. That's right. That just reminded me of the chat I had with the psychologist when I took my son. She said, if anxiety was going to be induced by any situation in the world, this is it. Yeah. We will never have to deal, unless this happens again, we will never have to deal with a more anxiety-induced moment in our lives. And let's hope we don't have to because I think the thing that helps us through life is that we can reflect on how other people have coped with certain situations. 
this has never happened before. We have no way of knowing how people are going to cope. What are the long-term effects? So I think we do need to be really kind to ourselves. And this is a really terrible year. But as educators, I think we can see that there are lots of learning moments in there too. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate all your insight, especially as a primary school teacher, because it's been a long time since I was at primary school. Pleasure. It was so good to talk to you. And it was really good to just stop and reflect and think about my education journey as well. So thanks, Laura. Thank you so much for sharing.